I'm Louisa Wilcox, and this is Grizzly Times, where we speak for the grizzly bear and the wild places it calls home. We introduce you to scientists, filmmakers, policy experts, and others who share their insights and experience speaking and working on behalf of the bear. At a time of unprecedented human-caused change, grizzlies depend on us more than ever. To learn more about what's happening and how you can help, subscribe to our newsletter at grizzlytimespodcast.org. This is Louisa Wilcox with Grizzly Times, and I'm delighted to be here today with my friend Bruce Gordon. Bruce is a veteran pilot who has spent decades offering journalists, decision makers, and citizens a bird's eye view of threatened landscapes across the West. Since the 1980s, I've worked with Bruce on a host of campaigns to elevate the profile of special places, and I've seen the transformative impact that seeing the big picture can make. In one of my early experiences, Mike Sullivan, then governor of Wyoming, was inspired to protect the Clark's Fork of the Yellowstone River from being dammed after a single flight with Bruce. And Bruce also played a key role in a campaign that stopped a huge Canadian corporation from digging a massive gold mine on the doorstep of Yellowstone Park. So many politicians and reporters wanted to see what was at stake that Bruce took on the role of guide as well as pilot to free up a seat in his plane that would otherwise have been taken up by me or another local activist. And Bruce was critical to an ambitious project that involved flying all 23 mountain ranges in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem in a single summer to assess the health of the whitebark pine forests in the first ever study of how climate change was impacting this keystone tree species. The findings played a key role in litigation to protect Yellowstone grizzlies that depend on whitebark pine seeds for food, and they recently helped get the tree protected under the Endangered Species Act. I'm delighted to visit today with Bruce about his journey flying for conservation. Well, it's a pleasure, Louise. It's, uh, it's been amazing after uh, seeing you up in uh, Livingston when I landed doing some flights up there over the crazies, and we got to reconnect, and uh, we've been chatting, and what a flood of wonderful memories uh, come back, things you sort of forget about as you're moving on to the next issue or experience, and... Uh, and to think back on those wonderful days uh, with you were really terrific. So thanks for the opportunity to chat with you, too. Yeah, yeah it's, it's an honor. Um, so, Bruce, you were born in Chicago and raised in Brooklyn. So how did you go from being a city kid in the East and Midwest to flying for conservation in the West? Yeah, that's a good question. You posed it to me, and I have to reflect. I go, well... I used to be pretty good at stoop ball and uh, stick ball in the city and ended up going to, going to college and uh, changing everything I was doing. I was upstate New York. I didn't give uh-huh. much thought to it at that time, but upstate New York was, uh, you know, for me, a pretty wild place. And I think it somehow imbibed in me a, a real appreciation for nature, something that was a lot different than stick ball for sure. Uh, so I, I don't know. It's a, it was just a sort of a fortuitous path that uh, – took me uh, after the service, got drafted during the Vietnam conflict, and ended up uh, doing, after the service, doing a short stint of of working in uh, Wall Street for about six months. I said, boy, I can't deal with this, and going west. (laughs) And something just sort of lured me out there and uh, got involved in uh, in being in the mountains and climbing and doing all kinds of uh, wonderful things in the mountains. And 
being a ski bum. But uh, mm-hmm. that didn't last long. I needed to do something else, so I uh, got the uh, VA bill to teach me to fly. And I learned to fly, and I'd been on mountain rescue, so I was going to combine flying with the mountains, and I was about to head off to Alaska to do uh, flying for mountain rescue kind of uh, issues. And met a guy named Michael Stewart and uh, sort of teamed uh-huh. up to do what we uh, ended up calling conservation flying. Yeah, so you founded EcoFlight with your friend, uh, the musician John Denver, in 2002. But you'd done conservation flying decades before that. And in my estimation, all told, you've been flying to save special places for over 40 years. So, Bruce, what is it about getting people up in a plane that is so transformative? Yeah, I learned that early on that... uh, you know, again, for me, uh, combining my love of, of nature, and I'd been uh, also volunteering with local schools, uh, education, um, getting mm-hmm. people in an airplane and showing them places that they've never seen before in a way that they've never seen it before was, as, as you said, transformative. People are sitting in that airplane, and, you know, for the most part, pre- people are a little nervous or, or it uh, – even if they're not nervous, they're, you know, their uh, senses are, are heightened. So they're thinking about what's mm-hmm. going on, they're looking, and then by being able to explain what's going on to people, seeing how our ecosystems, our watersheds, how they're all connected, and uh, trying to get people to understand not just the beauty that you're seeing, but also some of the concerns and problems and we started combining that with uh, some ground tours and these aerial educational tours you know, were born. And it was a way for people to get the big picture, try to understand what's really going on. And it was a very, uh, a very good way to communicate because people were listening. They were, you know, when you were saying something. And then the idea being that, you know, I certainly am not an expert on any of these issues. Uh, uh, or, or many of these issues, but uh, I certainly know a little bit a lot, but I could steer people in the right direction. And for me, it's all about education. And uh, uh, these days I'm saying I don't want people looking out the left side of the window, and I don't want them looking out the right side of the window. I want them looking at the earth, at the ground, thinking about what they care about, and then hmm. advocating for what they care about. Mm-hmm. Well, it is a transformative process being up in a plane with you. Um, and I think I only threw up in your plane once, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Which is yeah, nothing I to say. Oh, dear. There was a campaign we did. We're doing oil and gas down here in Colorado yeah. over the Peons Basin. And we uh-huh. flew everybody, you know, every county commissioner, every mayor, everybody. And there was one lady, her name was Claire Bastable. And she was, uh, sort of reminded me of you. She she brilliant and she could really express herself so well um and she hated flying i mean she couldn't stand it Mm -hmm. but as so many people actually have been up in the air who know the land and and act as guides sometimes they get up in the air and they're they get they get air sick they get sick Mm -hmm. and they never stop you know explaining and informing and educating the people so yeah it was pretty funny (laughs) yeah 
and, and again, I was talking about how, you know, just being in, in the confines of the airplane, and it's exciting, and it's beautiful, and, it, and, and uh, sometimes it's fearful. But there were times also when you get people up, and they, they have these transformative experiences, and yeah. uh, maybe because of the airplane, but mostly because of the landscape. So years ago, working on uh, clear-cutting, and people would go up who were loggers, and the issue, of course, was always jobs versus, you know, uh, conserving the landscape sometimes, right. logging. And they would say, oh, my God, I had no idea that so right. much of this land had been clear-cut. And it really opened their right. eyes, and it changed them in a transformative way. Same with these oil wells that I was referring to with uh, Claire down here. People would say, oh, yeah, there's some wells. But then you take a look at the wells, and the wells are right next to the river, right next to the right. watersheds and the heart of the watersheds. And, and the people who were really um, wanting to, to drill more and do more uh, on the landscapes would say, well, wait a minute, maybe I need to pull back a little bit and be a little more conservative and conservation-oriented. Right. I mean, I can speak to that um, with what happened in what, with White Park Pine. You know, thanks to you being in Jackson that day we were having that educational program of uh, the impacts to White Park Pine from climate change and mountain pine beetles. And after this program, we got the Forest Service uh, district ranger actually up in the air and she knew that whitebark pine were dying as a result of this beetle epidemic, and it was an unprecedented outbreak. But she had never seen the scale of it. And you got her up in the air, and she got down on the ground, and she said, I'm in. We are going to assess this ecosystem in terms of whitebark pine damage. And thankfully, you had the time to do the overflights. But, but because we couldn't have done that project, that whole analysis ecosystem-wide of whitebark pine loss, if it hadn't been for your flight with Liz Davy, the Forest Service District Ranger, who was st- astonished at what was going on in the landscape. So similar to the loggers you flew and, the, and people interested in the oil and gas development, it really changes your understanding of what is happening and, and then your role in, in trying to address what's going on. So it's an amazing, yeah, you know, amazing. Yeah, go ahead. I remember that meeting and uh, flying, I, <laughs> flying into Garden, I guess, and and going up into you and you 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 uh, put this incredible meeting together that was so informative. Then Janie and I, I don't know if you remember this, Janie and I were then flying home, and uh, we looked over and we saw a patch of red trees, you know, way over there. And Janie took some incredible pictures, and then we sent it to some of your colleagues, and then we spent yeah. an awful lot of time trying to remember and see where they right. were. And it yes. was one of the first really documented outbreaks that was so horrendous up there. And that picture yeah. went on to be sort of a poster child for a lot of that work we did. Right. Well, that photograph that your partner, Jane Pargeter, took went around and around the entire Forest Service and conservation world before a Forest Service person actually figured out where that sea of red, those white bark pine in process of dying, where that sea of red was, which was on the Bridger Teton Forest. But So it was. It was this iconic photograph that was used throughout the campaign. This is what's going on. These trees are dying. You couldn't get that perspective from the ground. And uh, So thank you and thank Jane for, for all of that uh, contribution, actually, to changing people's minds from seeing yeah, the actual yeah she's quite a photographer so it's great to you know when she's on board she's also a pilot she's uh my mm-hmm. wife from south africa jane pargeter and uh 
Mm-hmm. You know, she, uh, you know, what we're doing, you know, we'll talk about it in a little while, but some of the ideas she's coming up with and the educational aspects of what we're doing are, are right. still as exciting as ever. Yeah. So uh, along these lines, Bruce, you've flown with hundreds of environmental groups and in hundreds of places from the little ones like the Act Valley Forest Council of Montana to the big ones like Sierra Club and Natural Resources Defense Council. You've flown for everybody. Is there a campaign that stands out as just particularly meaningful, the story that you've carried with you? Well, that's a tough question because there's been so many. And probably starting with the one when I was working with you, and you know, I always remember the annual meetings at GYC, and you were running them, and, and, uh, and that was about the time when the New World Mine was going on, and mm-hmm. flying everybody, and really for the first time realizing that you could fly so many different people and they all have an impact from the press, the political decision makers, the media representatives, the concerned citizens. You name it, you know, we would, we would fly everybody out of, uh, out of that little strip in Gardner. And, it, you know, it was challenging flying. It was exciting and fun. But the proximity of Yellowstone to that area made for a very compelling uh, oversight and overview. And uh, that, that, to me, and, and to, you know, and winning, <laughs> winning the campaign, yeah. you know, yeah, it was uh, very exciting, and, and that, of course, gives extra emphasis to it. But through the years, I mean, just most recently, we were working uh, very diligently on the Bears Ears, which is a, a monument for uh, Native Americans had put in down in southern Utah. And uh, unfortunately, the Trump administration sort of uh, changed things there, and ho- we're hoping we're going to get back on board with that and uh, reconfigure that monument again. Um, excuse me. Darn. That's right. Um, so hopefully we're going to get back on board with, uh, you know, that monument and that campaign, which was great for us because um, I've been a member of the climbing community, so we could really help organize people uh, from the climbing community and the Native Americans. Janie has real uh, – Oh, really good connections with with a lot of the tribes there. So we were really involved in that campaign right from the get go, and of course mm-hmm. it was devastating when the Trump administration rolled it back. But it was it was groundbreaking to have a first Native American monument, uh, and it was very exciting. And we think it will be reestablished in its uh, in its uh, full full capacity in the, in the near future. You know, and just when you talk about campaigns, a couple more come to mind. Working over on the Snake River with dam removal, again, with the tribes up in the, the Oregon area and the Idaho uh, places where the mines and the, and the tribes are working on getting those uh, dams down. And, again, what makes them memorable is, is your win, when you win them. So it makes you feel very good about that. And, and then, you know, we, we certainly do uh, fly everywhere and working with the Desert Protection Act also was a very meaningful campaign, working with so many different organizations, so many people that are really committed to, uh, to, to, to change and positive change and just the most wonderful characters that I first started meeting back, you know, in those GYC uh, Yellowstone days, which, you know, so those, all those things pretty much stem from those beginnings when we were first starting to do conservation flying and, uh, to now we're out there working with, with the tribal issues and uh, campaigns just around here in, uh, in Aspen, Colorado, where we finally retired a whole bunch of oil and gas leases, where I ended up flying, 
you know, Governor Hickenlooper and uh, Senator Udall and Senator Bennett and, uh, you know, you name every one of the, the uh, county commissioners around here. So these campaigns that start off on the grassroots level and they uh, end up really uh, gaining momentum and the images we can bring back and the advocacy we can propose from getting that view of the, the terrain and how it affects everybody um, is very fulfilling. I mean, that's what's, to me, interesting about what I do or, or exciting for me and challenging is that not only are you, are you dealing with the issues of conservation and the, uh, the, 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 the aspects of, of the pros and cons of, of, of different landscapes or, or what to do about them, but then there's the flying aspect of it that you're, mm-hmm. you're interested in. And, you know, I, you asked what particular incident. There's no real particular one, but in reflection, Nowadays, um, if I'm flying into Jackson Hole, they have a, you know, or a place like that, almost each airport has a weather reporting station. And back in the other mm-hmm. days, most days, in the old days, um, we did not have that. So you would maybe go from a place to, uh, coming up from the Green Va- uh, Valley up into um, Jackson, and Jackson was reporting clear, and you would start up the valley over Holback Junction, and all of a sudden you go, man, this is not even close to clear. And that was one mm-hmm. of the first times I realized, the, you know, some of these limitations of the new technology coming out or, the, or no technology available for you. So flying, right. you know, really, uh, really had some, some, uh, some difficulties, um, made the difficulty, you know, of, of an airplane. And that day with Hoback Junction uh, made me say, boy, um, you know, I can't rely on this, and at any moment things can change, and I better really always keep doing my homework and uh, keep doing mm-hmm. the training as, as much as I can because weather is unpredictable, and even though 20 miles away it's clear, it sure ain't right now, and this is mountain flying. And this was, you know, many, many years ago, and you, you learned right. lessons from that. But I, that, that stood out for me when you said what particular incident. I remember cruising yeah. up there feeling real good about uh, the weather improving and everything's going to be great, and all of a sudden I'm, you know, really concerned and having to go to Plan B and Plan C. Right, right, yeah. So, you know, so in, in hearing you talk about flying, you know, across the West, I also am thinking about you're flying on several continents where the hazards really weren't just the weather. Um, such as when you were down in Nicaragua documenting illegal logging, and and then you were part of this crazy project called the Mega Transect that involved surveying 2,000 miles of country in the Congo Basin uh, with the uh, explorer, renowned explorer and ecologist Michael Fay. So, so that had to, that was another level of challenge, I would assume. And uh, were there times you weren't sure you were going to get out of there? <laughs> Oh gosh! Sometimes I, I'm, I'm challenged to get out of the house here. Sometimes I wonder about that. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, all that stuff goes into your mind for sure. And yeah, you know, it's it's really cool for uh, to to um, listen to these questions because it brings back a flood of memories. I said, God, yeah, mm-hmm. I used to do that. I said, and nowadays I say, how the hell did I do that? But uh, <laughs> by the good grace of God, go I, that's for sure. I'm just mm-hmm. a real lucky guy in many ways. But, you know, and, and you do your homework and you, you do your best and you pays your money and you take your, your chances sometimes. But, um, yeah, those, those couple of, of uh, 
places you just mentioned, whether it was into Central or South America or going across the Atlantic. I took a 206 across the Atlantic Ocean to get the plane wow. over there to help support uh, that crazy guy. I mean, you know, I, th- I thought I was being <laughs> crazy going across the Atlantic, but then I realized what he was doing walking across the, uh, you know, the Congo. And so the plane was used in support, and, you know, we didn't do a lot for that, but it was uh, it was there, and, uh, and you know, I really admire people like, like Michael Fay who, who take on these huge challenges. But there were times in Central America, too. I remember uh, actually South America. Uh, let's see if I remember this exactly. It was, it was down in Ecuador, and uh, they were cutting these manga lines, which, you know, there was uh, demarcation mm-hmm. lines because it was a huge... Uh, calling for uh, oil and gas, and the the uh, indigenous people were up in arms up there. Oh. And um, it, it, in fact, it, at one time, it, it was a terrible mistake. But uh, the the indigenous people really hated the uh, the the Conoco people, and uh, a priest was coming in in a Conoco helicopter. I don't know if you remember this. It was big oh. news. A priest was coming in in a, in a Conoco helicopter to uh, help make the peace and stuff, but the indigenous people thought he was a, con- a Conoco representative and ended up killing him. So it was all oh, about, you know, uh-huh. the, the, you know, tempers were high. It was, it was working mm-hmm. on landscapes way down there. So, you know, you really say, God, what am I getting myself involved in? You know, this is mm-hmm. pretty, pretty intense stuff. People are really concerned. And, and, and then on, on a local front, uh, it comes to mind, makes me laugh almost was, uh, you know, doing a lot of flying for a wolf reintroduction. And I was working oh. with Diane Boyd up in the uh, oh, yeah. up in the Flathead. And, that you know, this was when I was first going up there. And mm-hmm. so I'm going up with this biologist. He says he's been here before. I said, well, I've never landed on this little place. Diane had a little cabin on a dirt strip, and she was right. doing this remarkable research to bring in the wolf. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. Because the wolf was coming across the Canadian border on its own, but the people were talking mm-hmm. about reintroduction and the pros and cons of that. And anyway, we're flying along, and I said, you know, I don't know where this trip is. Are you sure you know where it is? And he says, oh, yeah, yeah, it's this little place, and I, I've been in there a couple of times. I know just where it is. So we're flying along, and I'm, you know, and I'm trusting this guy, which was mistake number one, uh, mm-hmm. and then number two and number three. Uh, so I'm coming along, <laughs> and, you know, I say, well, on the map, it looks like it's about here. He says, no, no, it's over here. I'm, I'm sure it is, right there. So I see a, a clearing, and I say, boy, are you sure? He goes, yep, yep, positive, positive, no problem. So I circle around there. There was nothing on the map, and I judged it. I said, boy, that's pretty short. I don't know. He said, no, no, positive. And, you know, this guy flew in there. I said, well, if that guy flew in there, I can fly in there. So I come, and I make an approach, and it comes, you know, I think it's a good approach, and I go, no way, I'm not getting in there. I go around again, and the guy mm. just is really upset now. He says, look, that you, you know, you should be able to fly in there. I can blah, blah, blah. Anyway, I come in, and I make this really great approach, and I land, and I come screeching to a halt at the uh, ed- edge of the uh, the tree line with a little creek beyond it, and I taxi back, and the guy goes, huh, this sure doesn't look like the place. And he says, mm. Oh, I got the wrong place. And so here I am on this real little strip in the heat of the day, and I go, boy, I'm sort of stuck. And a guy drives by in a truck. Uh, he says, what the hell are you doing here? I said, well, <laughs> we, thought it was, we thought it was this airstrip. And he goes, well, I ain't seen somebody in this strip since 1958 or something. I said, well, great. So, so we got a couple of, yeah, 
I was saying, well, what, what am I going to do now? I'm in the middle of grizzly yeah. bear, wolf country. Yeah, yeah, right. I got an airplane. It's all I got. And uh, we spent the next, uh, spent the whole day, you know, clearing and cutting. We cut down some big trees and everything else, and waited till uh, real late at night. And uh, it was real cold, so the uh, density altitude was okay. And we we got out of there, and you know, about a half a mile away was Diane's place. Right. Well, speaking of planes, you know, you've spent so much time in the cockpit and, you know, where you, and you have to know all the quirks of the different planes in such intimate detail. Uh, do they, in the end, have personalities to you? I mean, do you give them names? And, and if so, do you have a favorite plane? Well, my favorite plane is the one I still operate that, uh, oh. you know, just getting a new engine and the thing is like brand new and it's a Cessna 210. It can go 200 miles an hour and, it, you know, huh. get, get you from one place to another, you know, whether it's Central America or, you know, reasonably. Wow. And uh, you can also fly it at 70, 75 miles an hour. I fly it for mountain rescue up here, you know, right, mm. on, right on the edge. So it can go slow and fast. And, yeah, there's so many planes. But, you know, we used to operate many, many when it first started was a Twin Otter, you know, one of those uh, oh. high-wing airplanes mm-hmm. with the big wheels that could land on dirt strips, but real mm-hmm. expensive to operate. But, uh, mm-hmm. you know, and naming naming airplanes, I guess, you know, you know, I think we many years ago named, uh, somebody gave us a generous donation. We, we put a nickname on the airplane, but, yeah, I just, mm-hmm. you know, I usually just refer to mine as, you know, one X-ray Echo, which is a... Uh, Sort of catchy, huh. which is actually that is catchy. Yeah, huh. nobody Great. can pronounce it sometimes. Yeah, but it uh, <laughs> yeah, it's a wonderful airplane. So Bruce, you were close friends with John Denver, with whom you shared a love of airplanes and the mountains and the West, and saving special places. So, so what made your relationship with John so special? And if he were alive today, are there some things you'd like to talk about? <laughs> when you just said that, the first thing that comes to my mind was uh, years ago we'd be sitting around and, uh, you know, we were talking about John getting into politics. And he says, well, I can make more, uh, more, uh, I can make more of a difference not being in politics. And I just thought of politics because if, if he was around today and, and saw what just happened yesterday uh, with our country and, and uh, at the Capitol building, the guy would have gone crazy because he was a guy that really cared. He cared about so many mm-hmm. things. And, um, you know, we really connected, you know, years ago when I was climbing the Himalayas, he was a big supporter of mine. And, you know, we would uh, end up, you know, taking these long walks in Aspen or these different places around the world. I was one of his, one of the people that would travel with him once in a while who did not work for him. So we we shared a lot of time Mm -hmm. in special places. You know, one time in Mexico came to mind when you asked this question, was we were just sitting out in the moonlight, uh, just sitting out in the ocean and uh, just hanging, and the waves are coming in, and we're looking at at the uh, at, at the moon and talking about the planet. And I don't know mm-hmm. if many people know this, but John uh, was was very involved with NASA. He was a big supporter yeah. of NASA. And uh, one one special memory for me was taking off in his Learjet on his way down to Johnson Space Center because he was going to take a look and talk to Goldman, the, uh, I think that was his name, the, uh, the director of NASA, because mm. John wanted to go into space. And, in fact, he was wow. close to getting that, that honor, 
And the flight that they were talking about him going on was the one, unfortunately, with Christy McCauley that blew up. Oh. Um, so John oh. went over there, and I watched them do all these things with the astronauts. And, uh, and uh, it, it was really a heady time for me. But, you know, we shared our love of, of flying, of the, of the mountains and the spirit of the mountains that was so well reflected in his music. And, uh, mm. you know, we had a, had a sense of adventure. The guy guy uh, coming back from Japan, a concert tour one time, we had a crazy old friend that would take us to these waterfalls in, uh, on Maui. Mm. And then this guy oh. could, could dive. He went up about 40 feet and did this dive into this pool. And next thing oh, I know my. is, is uh, old J.D. is walking up the, the same path, and he, he jumps off this thing and does this incredible swan dive, you know, hardly, oh. almost like he didn't, and I guess he was quite a diver in his youth. And there was another aspect huh. of this, this guy that you'd never seen before. But it was his care about the earth and his care about the planet. And uh, his proposal to NASA was, you know, you get me up in, the, in, this, air, in this space and I'll do a show. He really thought, you know, they could uh, pay for some of this stuff, and he would boot beam down his music and sentiments down to the earth, and then beam them out oh. into the uh, out to the uh, cosmos. So, you know, he was a wow. dreamer. There was no doubt he was a dreamer. Yeah. But on the other side, he, yeah. he was he was a practical guy. We we actually uh, used his his uh, Learjet to take. Huh. Um, the uh, highest, the, the premier of Canada up in British Columbia, and oh. a whole gaggle of, of press and people like that over the Pacific Northwest when the Spotted Owl conflict was happening. So we oh. it. He, first he did it, first he did a concert tour up in Canada, not not uh-huh. a tour, a concert evening, uh, because we had worked on the Tachinchini. I don't know if you remember oh, that yeah. campaign because I do. So there was a cat. We had done some flying up there in the Tachinchini, and, and he uh, was helping a fundraiser like that. And then I talked him into getting these dignitaries and flying over the Pacific Northwest. And so there we are in a Learjet with all his flaps out, fly, flying at minimum speed with all these characters, and he's flying the plane and, and uh, showing the clear cuts and all those other visuals that you see uh, on that issue many, many years ago. But he was, uh, he was a wonderful man, just a, a regular wonderful character yeah and so inspired about you know with the notion that educating people across the country um is important if we have any hope for conservation and and along those lines you know he had i guess this vision of uh you know the flight across america which it sounds like you've taken up part of that in your work in colorado with with jane your colleague um involving students in Colorado, maybe you could talk a bit about that. Yeah, that, we uh, we do uh, at EcoFlight a, uh, a program called Flight Across America, and I do it in the name of uh, John Denver. And Jane, it really, you know, was it was so influential in in getting this uh, program off the ground after a whole summer of flying almost every day, and then we we uh, we direct our attentions to young adults and. You know, John and I on the golf course once came up with this idea uh, that we were going to fly an airplane from Alaska uh, to Washington, D.C. on Earth Day 2000. And Uh along the way, we were going to recruit different uh, celebrity pilots to fly from place to place and then hold an evening 
of education, fundraising, whatever have you, a brouhaha, dog and pony <laughs> show. And we had, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we were starting conversations with Travolta, with uh, Tom oh. Cruise, with Harrison Ford. Right. And we were trying right. to, you know, see if this makes sense. And the idea was to end in uh, Washington, D.C. on Earth Day. So it was just in the beginning of, uh, you know, planning and talking and everything else. And then John, unfortunately, met uh, his demise on uh, way too soon. Um, and then yeah. I kept thinking, well, I'll, I'll keep doing this maybe in his in his memory. But nobody returned my calls. <laughs> they returned uh, John's in a second, <laughs> but not mine. Yeah. And so we went right. on. I said, how can I honor his memory and do that? So I created a program uh, where we would fly uh, young adults over these different issues and have experts in conservation speak to them. And a lot of times mm-hmm. it would culminate in these, um, these uh, you know, big meetings in, in the towns, uh, whether it was mm-hmm. Aspen or not. We'd have, we'd have people from the whole Roaring Fork Valley come up, and we'd do presentations, the people that went on these uh, mm-hmm. this, this flight across America. And sometimes we'd have three airplanes, four airplanes filled with young adults and, and wow. going from place to place. And we would end up, um, you know, having these big presentations at the end of them. And it was very mm-hmm. exciting. We'd have speakers like Peter McBride from, you know, National Geographic, and we'd have all kinds of experts come and talk to the community. So we were not only reaching the, uh, the, the participants, we were tasking the participants, the young adults, to then mm-hmm. go out and write editorials in their hometown wow. papers and mm-hmm. make their own presentations to more people. So we were reaching a, a lot of people, and uh, it was very exciting because a lot of people went on to become leaders in the environmental movement, uh, people that we had yeah. found from Mon- Montana and people down from uh, from uh, rural places in Arizona, too. So, it, you know, it was around the country. It's, uh, it, we, we keep doing a facsimile uh, of this program, but we... I feel I feel very strongly that uh, it's an important program. It you know it also started when I watched uh, flew Speaker Foley many years ago. House Speaker Foley mm-hmm. he fell asleep. I said I can't just keep flying these politicians because they're they're politicians. Right. Period. Right. And so we it's too late for some of them. Yeah. yeah so mm-hmm. looking at another addition and inspiration it's it's an inspiration for us to fly these kids too these guys yeah there's a process to get accepted there's a process that they have to produce articles and other things uh so it's a pretty good outreach and it makes us feel really good and janie has been incredible uh, you know leading that charge well thank you so i mean if there is a future it is in you know the kids you're taking up in the air involving in this programs I mean, they if they undertake in a motivated way saving this planet, we will have a hope. So, thanks for thanks for that. Um, yeah, you mentioned climbing a bit ago, Bruce, and and I remember over the years that when we would get together, we'd often t- talk about climbing and mountaineering uh, because it's a shared interest. Uh, I'm not your level by any stretch, but um, what do you think, Bruce, are aspects of flying and climbing? I mean, are they similar or different for you? Because you mentioned them back and forth. You're interested in climbing. You're interested in flying. Yeah, I um, I think they are very similar. Um, I think it it creates. I mean, years ago when I would teach climbing, you know, the best thing about it was you have a uh, one guy, you know, someone someone belaying someone else, and there's a sort of a uh, a commitment about the rope, and and, and there's a, a comrade. 
com- camaraderie. And, but, th- but it all comes from an awareness, you know, thinking about the other mm-hmm. person. So, th- you know, so that, you know, that involves other people, whereas is flying, you know, you may not be involving other people or relying on other people. So that, that's a difference, that, you know, relying on yourself in many instances. But it's an awareness. It, it's a, it, it's a, it opens up your, um, your consciousness. You have to be mm-hmm. thinking about so many different aspects. Mm-hmm. Uh, weather is always an aspect about it. You know, how, mm-hmm. how are you feeling personally? Mm-hmm. You know, what do you mm-hmm. need to know technically? Um, sometimes mm-hmm. with airplanes, there's, there's a little more that you have to think about, and you, you need a backup plan. But I, I, mm-hmm. think, um, I think the most important thing is, is an awareness, with it, and it's a self-awareness mm-hmm. That, mm-hmm. that is a, a common denominator there. Uh, where you're at, what are your capabilities, you know, what, what are my intentions, and, and the decision-making. Decision-making right. is, uh, is really important. Many years ago, and you probably remember this, I, I know you were involved with Knowles, I can't remember exactly what, what way, but it was the five P's uh-huh. that they teach. Prior planning yeah. prevents poor performance. And performance, that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, and, yeah. Yeah, and that to me is, you know, another similarity that you really have to do yeah. with climbing and with with flying but again yeah. the, uh, the 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 mindfulness and the uh, awareness of of who mm-hmm. you are where you are what you're doing to do here is is is, is a, a common denominator listening to you talk about you know climbing and and flying in that way it reminds me about what it's like to be in grizzly bear habitat you know where you have to be completely present um, you can't be distracted, you know, or on your iPhone or, you know, what have you. You have to be listening to the crack of a twig, the, you know, sight of ravens that might signal a carcass. I mean, every, you can't be somewhere else. And uh, I think that gives us those, those experiences give us uh, something closer to, you know, maybe our original self, that we, we can be present. We don't have to be distracted on social media, and we may be wiser for it. Actually, but, well, that that is yeah. really beautiful. That that's what I was trying to say. <laughs> that's so beautifully mm-hmm. said, though. Being our being our original self and and uh, and, and the sen- your senses, etc., are heightened by those experiences. Yeah. yeah exactly. Yeah. Interesting. Cool. Yeah. Well, you mentioned Ruth Aston a few times, where you've lived uh, since the 1970s, and. You know, I know you've seen dramatic changes in the human landscape. All of us have who've lived in the West for any length of time. But you've also had a bird's-eye view of the changes. How have the changes in the West affected you? Yeah, well, they've, uh, they've galvanized me for many, many years as I see things that are changing that I don't feel, uh, you know, are you know, what I would like, you know, but I recognize that what I would like is not certainly what everyone would like, but that's been, been part of my job is, is to put these uh, changes out in front of people and say, is this what you want or is this what you not want? Here in Aspen, um, it's amazing how, you know, when I drive down the streets now, even with the pandemic, that the people are still here, it's busy, it's crowded, the buildings are busier. But what bothers mm. me the most is, when people come here, and especially this last year or so, they've come here in droves and relocated here and are, you know, getting on uh, changing the, the uh, school board and different aspects of, you know, a little faster than I would like to see. And that's just my own personal mm. opinion, of course. But what I see them doing is um, instead 
of inhaling where they are. They're exhaling where they've been. And, <laughs> I, you know, I, I find that, you know, and those changes are just not why I came here. And, and, uh, and uh, it just happened a little too fast, a little too many people. And I think we see that all over our country. But, mm-hmm. you know, as far as the environment's concerned, uh, the air, when I used to fly in southern Utah, was crystal clear blue. And it's just not mm-hmm. like that anymore. The uh, the the untrammeled uh, backcountry all of a sudden has a mining claim <clears throat> in the middle of it, <clears throat> mm-hmm. or some other area that, that people have gotten some exclusions or are building some project there. The um, Lake Powell, you look at, mm-hmm. and this is of course climate change, not so much about people. Or maybe there's a lot of people taking uh, more water all the time. But the bathtub rings on Lake Powell are really discernible, mm-hmm. just incredible. The red dust, mm-hmm. there's a red dust phenomenon that's going on in the wintertime here, that, or mm-hmm. in the spring, <clears throat> where all of the, uh, the uh, changes uh, in Utah and the, uh, the drilling and the mining, etc., is creating vast dust uh, bowl situations, and the wind blows uh, from the west, and all of a sudden you, you find layers of red dust up here in the, in the mountains, which is greatly increasing the, the runoffs the timing right. of the runoff and uh, increasing right. avalanche hazards. You know, so does that have to do just with people? You know, you can make an argument that it does. But uh, there's been a lot of changes like that. And, you know, just uh, looking at the pollution, we have some incredible images of Shiprock, this incredible uh, monolith um, out in, uh, near the Four Corners area. And, you know, the smog from the power plants, et cetera, from there, you know, you could hardly even see the darn thing sometimes. So, wow. you know, it's more people, more people upon yeah. the land, as, as John Song would always say. And so those mm-hmm. are things that, that I'm, you know, hopefully some of the images and the work that we've done with, with so many, uh, you know, committed uh, conservation organizations, and we fly for over 300 of them, you know, we're all working to get people to understand the challenges and try to address them appropriately. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, Bruce, you mentioned a minute ago the pandemic. Um, the coronavirus pandemic has obviously been just devastating for all of us, but but nobody's been hit harder than indigenous people, especially, you know, including tribal people in this country. And this spring you led an effort involving pilots who were friend of yours, friends of yours to deliver by air a quarter of a million PPEs to five different tribes at a time they were in desperate need. What are your most vivid memories of that experience? <laughs> the first thing that comes to mind are the FedEx trucks. Um, <laughs> Janie, Janie uh, did did this. Uh, Janie did this. Mm-hmm. You know, we have uh, Dion Bent is is a board member of one of the leaders of the Navajo Na- Nation down there, and he's one of our board members. And with mm. we've done a lot of work. Work. Uh, Dion Bent is his name. And uh, uh-huh. so Janie, in chatting with him and other people. Um, and talking with a, uh, one of the foundations that supports us, trying to figure out what was going on, trying to get an idea lay of the land. Janie was talking about different conservation needs for the tribes, and then we found out that one of the foundations was trying to get uh, materials to the tribes. And there was this mm-hmm. incredible convoluted um, uh, d- hoops they had to jump through, you know, going to the, the communities. And Dean said hey, this is not working. The people are not getting these, these, uh, these PPEs, which are so important. Nobody's getting it. So Janie said, well, look, 
we can do this. We can get these supplies to these remote areas. And what you need to do, Foundation, uh, please, is get us the material. And then Janie said to, to the, the leaders that she knew and worked with on conservation issues, you know, we're going to get the, these, this material. Now you figure out, you know, how many goes to where, goes to what. And we dealt with five different tribes, which is in itself a, tr- a challenge. We landed mm-hmm. on six or seven, seven landing strips, and uh, we, we delivered this material. But I said the FedEx trucks because I thought – at first, you know, okay, we'll get some material, and I'll put them, I'll repackage them, and I'll put them in plastic bags, and I'll fill my Cessna up, and I'll make two or three trips to a couple places. But we got a quarter of a million uh, of, of these PPEs. And what is a quarter of a million? Well, it's these huge, two huge FedEx trucks. And so then we said, what the heck are we going to do with this? And uh, got some volunteers in Atlantic Aviation, let us use a hangar, and we uh, boxed them up. We figured it out where it was going to go. And then I said, well, if I do the flying, it's going to take me a month. So I went down the flight line, and these incredible characters in Aspen, I mean, these guys are so talented, mm. you know. And uh, they all, we had about 10 airplanes, and uh, mm. we actually produced a video on this, which is pretty cool, and you can see all the airplanes oh. taken off in a very loose formation, spreading out, uh-huh. going to these different five airstrips, doing two or three trips. And we unloaded this, and it was a very, very timely um, uh, work that we did because, as you said, yeah. the, uh, it really was uh, hitting, hitting the indigenous folks and Native Americans very, very hard at the time. Yeah. Well, thank you. What, a, what an immense, you know, what a great contribution. And thanks to your friends who pitched in and, you know, pilot friends as well. So, so flying during the pandemic has posed a whole new set of problems for you, obviously. Uh, but you've taken to offering virtual flights with your GoPro camera, and you've been sleeping under the wing of your plane to avoid motels. What has been the most challenging and perhaps rewarding uh, about these innovations that you've crafted uh, with Jane to overcome constraints imposed by the pandemic and, and connect with people? Yeah, again, my my little sense of humor or whatever. The the, the answer to that is GoPro batteries, and uh, the GoPro <laughs> batteries, you know, they, they they were the most challenging, and the, and it turned out to to create the most rewarding experiences, um, in in many ways. Yeah, um, the GoPro batteries only worked about forty minutes, and so when we came up with the idea oh. of offering virtual aerial educational tours, you know, we were going to use GoPros, and um, so it, it captures some really good images. We have a, a talented video guy that works with us. So we go out and capture the images. We bring them back. Our video guy edits them. And then we work with the conservation organizations that are working on these specific issues, everything from mm-hmm. the Gallatin National Forest Plan up, up there um, outside near you up in Bozeman mm-hmm. to uh, the Crazy oh, yeah. Mountains. To uh, I go, I, I spent all summer doing these these things. Everything from the fires mm-hmm. of California to uh, just uh, last week or so to about well three weeks ago, some mining issues down in uh, with Roger Featherstone down, and so you create these uh, virtual tours, and they can be used for a, a myriad of uses. You can uh, mm-hmm. you know use them for. Uh, talking to various stakeholders and, and educating them on the issue. Or what I really like is when we get them out to the press and they get uh, on the TV and there's, uh, there's, uh, yeah. there's discussion, discussions about them and they 
some of them even went down. Uh, we did this one virtual tour outside here in North Park near uh, Walden in Steamboat, Colorado, and the next couple of days we responded quickly. We got them to a meeting of the uh, of the Commission on Oil and Gas and uh, the, something huh. to do with the methane flaring. So our, our our tours were used for that. So they can be very impactful and they can be very long-lasting and all educational. But again, so the, the idea, though, is getting these GoPros to uh, capture what you want. And uh, mm. sometimes the issue does not, um, you know, go along with uh, where they are compared to where an airport is. So you have all these mm-hmm. logistical issues. How much fuel do I have, et cetera. So we got to finding these little airstrips, which I hadn't been in for years and years and years. So I would go into these little airstrips, and I'd land, and I'd sleep at them uh, for the night, like you said. And so that was really rewarding. I mean, being out, and uh, that was, it was, you know, back to camping days and really fun for me in many ways, although it was challenging. <laughs> and get up early in the morning and then fly the GoPros over the issue and then, you know, always um, – working hard to have the right weight and balance for these small airstrips, which challenged my pilot skills. And then, you know, being out uh-huh. camping at night, and uh, that was, uh, it was, Janie would come with me. It was romantic sometimes. It was just a, a, a nice way oh, to sweet. do it, although it was uh, difficult sometimes. But the, uh, yeah. the stuff we, we've produced, we're very proud of. These virtual aerial educational tours, I think, are pretty well done. And, and the organizations we work with are uh, you know, comment and advocate and educate uh, about these particular issues. Mm-hmm. Well, Bruce, uh, it's common for pilots and astronauts to describe spiritual experiences when they're up in the air in space. Have you had any experiences you might define as magical or mystical? And and also, why do you think that flying in a plane thousands of feet or hundreds of feet up in the air or seeing Earth from space can be spiritual? Wow. Um, again, maybe because we talked about John earlier in this thing, one mm-hmm. kind of mystical kind of experience was that, uh, as I referred to earlier, we were on our way in his, in his Learjet to, uh, to uh, Houston. We took off at night. And all of a sudden, we saw a light uh, way to the right, uh, and we're flying along dead night. And it's just—it's hard to describe flying at night. It's just really beautiful, and quiet, mm-hmm. and, and uh, you, you feel like you—you you are up in space, especially in that kind of mm-hmm. airplane. And we saw a light, and uh, you know the pilots, and I was up in the cockpit, and the pilot, uh, uh, John's pilot, was there too. And he says, "What is that light?" And we both didn't know what it was. And we talked to ATC, Air Traffic Control. And they say, we don't, we're not painting anything out there. We don't have any radar out there. And all of a sudden, over the radio, you would hear, hey, what's that uh, light at 2 o'clock? Or what's that light at 4 o'clock? And so all these different aircraft were reporting this light. So, you know, we all get into our, you know, especially John gets into this, you know, spiritual, mystical, you know, thing, flying saucers and, uh, you know, outer space <laughs> and, and the cosmos. And it was really, it was pretty intense, you know, and, and really... Um, I don't know what to say. You're mystical, you know. You just didn't. Uh, you say, "Boy, what what are the possibilities? What what is there out there?" And mm. it reminds me also of a, again with John. He had a friend who uh, who I became very good friends with, named Bonnie Dunbar, who was an astronaut and up in the space shuttle. And she was up here oh. doing some mountain flying. She could fly. She could fly uh, T-38s. Uh, these jets, know. you know, back and forth. Mm-hmm. But she 
was was pretty inexperienced with small planes, and she was going back to Spokane, where her parents lived in a small plane, and she had to cross the Rockies. So she stopped in to visit with me, and um, and we did some mountain flying, you know, helped her out with at least getting across her route. But I remember one night in particular, we were sitting in the cabin and uh, and looking at the the picture. Um, that she has seen so often. Uh, uh, it was on Time magazine. It was Earth was the mm. Earth was the person of the year at that time. That picture yeah, of Earth right. from, from out in outer space, and she had seen that. It just was a a feeling of uh, that you're such a small part of the cosmos. You you mm-hmm. just uh, you 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 know you're existing on a different plane, and I feel that way in an airplane. Sometimes I'm flying above it. And I'm, uh, Janie said it really well, because I, I, I knew you might pose this kind of a question. She says, you know, she feels uh, that she's in an entirely different dimension and part of the ether, not part of the world. Just sort of above hmm. and watching as an observer. And uh, hmm. it, it reminded me, I guess, when I first came to Colorado, all those, you know, to go all the way back to what you said, when a city guy, you know, came back out to the mountains and... Uh, sleeping under the stars, as I did when I was first learning to climb and things. And I'd look at those stars, and people would say, you know, those, you know some of those stars went out, uh, you know, mm-hmm. millenniums ago or whatever, you know. So, so what is real? Where are you at with this? It's a, you know, what is the spirit of it all, you know? And you, uh, you, mm-hmm. you feel that spirit in the mountains, especially heightened like you shared so eloquently about when you're out there with the grizzly bear or or walking Mm. around in the woods and i feel like that a lot when i'm up in the air uh many times Mm. by myself just looking at at the world and the planet and just being very grateful to be uh able to uh to to think and feel you know what life really is wow well bruce this has been an honor and a treat uh thank you so much This is Louisa Wilcox with Grizzly Times here with pilot Bruce Gordon. Thank you. If you want to learn more about the Grizzly and what you can do to help, subscribe to our newsletter at grizzlytimespodcast.org. And if you can, give us a review. 